listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Are you looking at your options, parents? Of course, kids are out for a PA day today, and then, of course, it is expected that all elementary teachers will be off the job in Toronto and a couple other of the school boards in this province on Monday. So you're probably thinking to yourself, what am I going to do with the little ones? Keep an eye on that. Well, what you can do is you can get them started with shoveling because it's going to snow tomorrow. So you say, well, you just, you know, you just take it easy. Just just work your way up to it on Monday. Just just shovel your way right through it. Uh, big news from the uh, the Prime Minister. You heard it in the news. $25,000 to the families of each of the 57 Canadian citizens and 29 permanent residents who died when Iran shot down that Ukrainian passenger jet last week. I want to play for you two clips here which are really interesting. This is Justin Trudeau with the main announcement here. The government will give families of the victims who are Canadian citizens or permanent residents $25,000 per victim to assist with their immediate needs such as funeral arrangements and travel. This is a unique an unprecedented situation because of the international sanctions placed on Iran and the difficulties that that imposes on these families. I want to be clear. We expect Iran to compensate these families. That is Justin Trudeau speaking in Ottawa just a short while ago. I expect Iran to compensate these families, says Trudeau. So the 25k per victim that comes from the federal government I'm expecting that that compensation, or at least understand that the compensation then would somehow, when Iran actually does compensate the victims, assuming that that does happen, that perhaps that money comes back to the Treasury. That was not 100% clear from the Prime Minister. Now, here's one other thing I really wanted to to point out. You you may have heard earlier this week when the Prime Minister sat down with Donna Friesen from Global National in his first sit-down interview since the tragedy, he talked about escalating tensions in the region when she asked him about whether or not the United States bears any culpability for the downing of the passenger jet because of the drone attack on Suleimani. And what Trudeau said was it was escalating tensions, and, and it, he sort of skated around it, but it was enough of a shade to throw on the United States that that had some U.S. lawmakers upset. So here again, Trudeau is asked point blank, listen to the question, and then his answer. What is your level of culpability you think the Americans bear in this? The Iranians bear full responsibility for having shot down a civilian airline uh, with uh, 57 Canadians aboard, 176 passengers. No wobbling there, no equivocation, no talk about escalating tensions in the region. It is Iran's fault. We'll keep our eye on that that situation as it develops over the course of the day, but I want to turn our eye now to our streets and the steadily increasing casualty toll for pedestrians around this city. It is something that terrifies me as a resident of the city who walks around. I mean, I'm a driver, I'm a cyclist, I'm a pedestrian, I'm all of those things, but when I am on the streets, when I'm walking across the streets, when I live in the beaches and walking down Queen Street, I am worried. I'm always concerned. Here's a couple of things that have happened just recently. Yesterday, a 35-year-old woman was pinned under a car after she was hit by a driver in a North York parking lot. She's in hospital with life-threatening injuries. She was walking into the Walmart at Lawrence and Keele when she was hit by a 75-year-old woman driving a Toyota. And this morning in Barrie, 
Police there say a woman was killed in the early morning hours after she was struck by a tractor. Police say a farm tractor with a snowplow blade attached to the front was turning right. It hit two pedestrians that were crossing the street at an intersection. Both Bradford women, women from Bradford, one was pronounced dead at the scene. And on Saturday, a 57-year-old man suffering life-threatening injuries after being hit by a vehicle near St. Clair and Dufferin just after 11 p.m., a police spokesperson says it's reported the pedestrian went through the windshield of the vehicle. Just three examples of pedestrians being struck. Those are all three different incidents. I understand that. One in a parking lot, another one uh, in Barrie with this snowplow, and of course this one vehicle on Saturday night uh, hitting a 57-year-old man. But it speaks to an ongoing crisis for pedestrians on our streets. Jess Speaker is a spokesperson for Friends and Family for Safe Streets, an organization that promotes safer driving or safer streets for vulnerable road users, and she joins me on the line. Hi, Jess. Hi, thank you for having me. When I run down those examples, I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure there's nothing really there that surprises you. No, that's, uh, it seems to be, uh, these are just disturbingly common instances. And as you said, it's an ongoing crisis. We call it a public health crisis. Last year, the number of pedestrians killed on the street was about roughly equal to the number of gun deaths. And if you look at press coverage, you see a lot of talk about guns and about violence, but not nearly the same kind of concentration of stories about pedestrian safety. That's right. We seem as a culture to view it as an inevitable cost of doing business with getting everywhere in our cars, but it doesn't have to be that way. That's a matter of what our politicians have prioritized and the infrastructure that's been built, and we can fix that if we want to. Jess, a lot of our listeners will be in cars right now, and they will be thinking about personal responsibility, responsibility of pedestrians with headphones, responsibility of pedestrians who wear all black at night. How do you... uh, Tell me about that. What is your thinking on that? Uh, All of that is understandable, but it's misinformed. If you actually do the research and look at the statistics, we find that these fatalities are not caused by pedestrians somehow not taking personal responsibility. The second most dangerous thing you can do as a pedestrian in Toronto is cross at a marked intersection at a signalized intersection when you have the green light. Crossing on a green light you know, taking full responsibility does not in any way assure your safety whatsoever. It's not even a matter of whether or not pedestrians are visible or invisible to drivers because the majority of pedestrians are hit in broad daylight. What this is a problem with is infrastructure design. And as we've seen with these big heavy trucks striking people, it's probably a big role for the federal government to play in terms of regulating big truck design. When we talk about that incident in Barrie this morning, tragic incident where a woman lost her life, it appears that the truck was turning right, and there are many people who say that we should just simply ban right-hand turns on red. Do you agree? I think there's very strong statistical evidence to support that. Other cities do it, and it's fine. Montreal bans right turns on red, and they haven't you know, burst into flames or had some kind of Carmageddon. It doesn't add to the congestion in the way that a lot of people fear that it will. You don't spend all that much time at intersections waiting to turn right. It might cost you a few seconds on a commute, but surely it's worth it to save people's lives. I know as a driver, and of course, you know, I I have one of these SUV-type crossovers. The thing is giant, really, when you think of how, how big and how heavy it is. And when you take a right, often you don't see that pedestrian who all of a sudden decides, oh, it's down to three seconds on the flashing red, I'm going to take a run for it. 
Right. So that's an issue with vehicle design. Like if your vehicle is designed such that you might as well be blindfolded when you're driving through a pedestrian crosswalk, that's not acceptable. Why on earth would we allow such a dangerous machine to be sold and operated in Canada? There's a role to play in just terms of making sure that the sight lines at the very least are clear so that drivers of big vehicles can see the immediate environment where they might be likely to strike a pedestrian who's crossing the street with the right of way. Jess, what do you want the city of Toronto the or the civic government to do? I want them to actually do Vision Zero. We've had a whole lot of lip service and a whole lot of crocodile tears from our politicians. But when it comes down to doing the actual effective measures, which is redesigning our infrastructure, they balk. They fight against these measures. They send them to endless studies to endlessly be delayed, all while people are dying on our streets. We need to make motor vehicle drivers slow down by narrowing car lanes. We need to add physical protection between motor vehicles and vulnerable road users. These things are not that hard and not that expensive to do. If we decided we were going to do it, we could do a lot more than we are doing and we could do it much faster than we're doing. We could actually impact the numbers of pedestrians that are killed every year and we're not doing it. Jess Speaker is a spokesperson for Friends and Family for Straits Safe Streets. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. So as you heard, it might not be that expensive, but we can do it. What about turning right on that red? If we took that right away from you, if you can't do that as a driver, would you be outraged? Or would you say, if it saves lives, it makes sense? Welcome back to the program. I'm, I'm raring to go to get going on this next topic because it is January. It's divorce month. I don't know if you knew this, but more people get split up and split up and just call it quits uh, this month, apparently, than any other month. Or at least that's what uh, divorce lawyers say, that, you know, the new year comes around. People are like, well, I got Christmas under the belt. I'm done with that. Now I'm going to call a divorce lawyer. But one of the issues that seems to be creeping up more and more is custody battles over pets. Have you ever had an experience like this, whether or not it was a divorce? Maybe you just broke up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and then you, you now you got the, what do you do with the dog? I mean, there's all kinds of stories like this. I know when, uh, what, what, when my marriage failed, I did not want the two cats. I said, the cats are all yours. So that was not an issue. Never an issue when it comes to cats. But this is a big deal. And divorce lawyers see it time and time again. And I want your stories. Have you ever been through this? Have you ever had any kind of a dispute, a custody battle over a pet? Have you ever actually had to go to a lawyer and say, well, hang on, how do I, how do I hold on to the dog? How do I keep the dog's mine? I came to the relationship with the dog. I should leave it with the relationship with the dog. 416-870-6400. Now, as you're calling in, and we're about to get to a family lawyer for more perspective, I have a quick animal story. This is from Reno, Nevada. A pigeon wearing a tiny sombrero has been seen there, following sightings of cowboy hat-wearing cousins in Vegas. TV station reporting that the Reno city manager has tweeted about the bird, saying it's quirky and fun, but inhumane. Officials say it is the first known sighting of a hat-wearing bird in that region, but animal officials say that sighting comes after a pigeon in Vegas with a miniature cowboy hat glued to its head died earlier in the week. Somebody 
somebody in Vegas and Reno is gluing hats to birds. That's weird. Let's get back to those pet custody battles and your calls coming straight up here at 416-870-6400. Have you ever had to fight over who gets the pet? Laura Paris is a family lawyer with Shulman and Partners and joins me on the line. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? I'm well. First of all, let's begin with this. Is it true that January is divorce month? It is. Uh, new year, new relationship. <laughs> So basically, you just like I get a, I'm gonna get my way through New Year's. I got somebody to kiss, and then after that, it's it's Dunsville. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, you find you know with any with any New Year, a lot of people think about New Year's resolutions and kind of a fresh start. And if you're in a relationship that you're not happy, January first is a good time to 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 make that change. Okay, when it comes to splitting up, obviously, you know, if you have kids, that's a big issue, and people end up going to court, and there's all kinds of horror that goes on with that. But how often, as a divorce lawyer, as a family lawyer, are you encountering situations where there are disputes over pets? So you, it, it, it is a topic that does come up quite often. Now, the length in which people are willing to go, uh, for example, the amount of people that actually take pet custody matters to court is is not as often and i think the reality is is that when you look at the kind of the cost benefit analysis of it and and how much it's actually going to cost you with no guarantees through the court not a lot of people are looking to to go that far with it but that said for the purpose of negotiations certainly you see very often and and more often um uh, you know, uh, as of late, uh, that people are uh, concerned about the custody of, of their dog and, and what arrangements are going to be made for their dog uh, now pending the separation. So is there anything in law that would guide you on this? Not really. So the actual state of the law uh, when it comes to dogs is that dogs are treated as property. Um, so really the only legal question that needs to be determined is um, who has ownership of the dog, who purchased the dog. Now sometimes that could get a bit tricky depending on the age of the dog. Not all people you know, maintain records to show that they were the, the actual purchaser of the dog. So you may need to seek out other records such as vet records that name someone as a, as a purchaser or if you ever register the dog who's listed as the as the owner of the dog, uh, that type of evidence. But really, that's what it comes down to, who owns the dog, and the dog is treated as, as property. So if a couple is together, but the wife is the one that actually purchases the dog from a breeder and her name is on the receipt, does that mean that it's her dog? Correct. So from an ownership perspective, unless you can show, uh, which the law isn't settled on this, but unless from in some way you, you can show that ownership shifted at some point in the relationship, uh, which various factors could be brought, brought forward to determine that, um, but unless you're able to show that ownership shifted, then yes, the, the default is whoever bought the dog keeps the dog. So wait a second, if she buys the dog but I clean up all the poo, uh, does that, do I, do I get points for cleaning all the poo? Well, I mean, it, it's, it could be something that's considered amongst the factors, um, but it wouldn't be a standalone determinative factor to say that ownership shifted just because you're, you're the one cleaning up after them. Now, now, is there anything that says there can be visitation, or is that just something that hammered, is hammered out between the parties? That would be something that would agreed, be agreed to between the parties. A court would not touch that. Um, and uh, actually, even a decision as recent as, uh, that was released as recent as 2020 um, does acknowledge that we can't look at pets as 
property like any other inanimate object, like a like a desk or a bed or something of that nature. We do need to recognize that they are more. It it is more elevated property um, and does have should have more special treatment. But to expend court resources and and you know and parties um, legal fees on uh, dealing with pet custody, that's not something that the court at this point um, is willing is willing to deal with. But as a family lawyer, and I know other family lawyers who will tell me stories about, you know, I, I got an email from a guy who said that, you know, he was upset because his ex-wife was, you know, eating his blueberries or some crazy thing. And then you realize, well, wait a second, just reading that email costs you money. Yes. Well, I mean, this is this is a common thing, you know, a common conversation that you have uh, that you have with clients about, you know, whether it's you're talking about a dog or you're talking about any sort of kind of more um, frivolous issue. Yes, everything that that your lawyer does for you is you, you more or less you're getting charged for it. You send an email uh, just to say hello. I mean, technically, you could get charged for that. I mean, it's an email that that uh, that your lawyer has to read. So you do want to be uh, selective with the issues that you do choose to bring to your to your lawyer because uh, you don't want to see your fees um, amounting over, you know, petty petty sort of issues. Now, I don't want to categorize pet issues as petty issues because me, myself as a dog owner, I would never say that that's uh, that it's a petty issue. I mean, it would be something that would be important to me as well. But at the same time, you have to be realistic. If you can't come to an agreement on it, the court's not going to help you either. So to try to fight a fight in court that ultimately court doesn't have jurisdiction over, um, you know, your lawyer is going to tell you that it's not, it may, the cost benefit may not be worth it. Just summing up here with Laura Paris, who is a family lawyer at Shulman and Partners talking about battles over pet custody. I mean, I hate to think of it this way, but your point about whoever buys the dog, whoever has actual evidence about that, if you think your relationship is wobbly, or if you're just looking down the line, uh, should you be like uh, getting that receipt and getting all that stuff in, in order uh, in advance? Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I recommend that people do. I mean, again, talking about dogs or talking about any property, period. These are things that you should do whether or not your relationship's on the rocks because you never know what could happen. So these are just protections that you can put in place. Um, you know, usually we would recommend entering into some sort of marriage contract or cohabitation agreement, but if you don't want to do that, keeping these records together and making sure that the things that are important to you, that you have evidence to show that you are the rightful owner of them, that's keeping those records is important, whether your relationship is on the rocks or not. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. That's Laura Paris, family lawyer from Shulman and Partners. Appreciate you being on the program. Thank you. What have you been listening to lately? What have you been listening to on the old Spotify, the Apple Music? Well, I tell you, the new numbers are in. In the days following the death of Rush drummer Neil Peart, streams of the band's songs have now surged by 776%. On-demand audio and video streams for Rush catalog of songs increased to a combined 24.5 million. Number one stream song... This 1981 hit, Tom Sawyer, with 2.82 million streams. Rest in peace, Neil Peart.
On March 7th of this year, the Ontario Liberal Party will choose its next leader. Over the next few weeks on Focus, we'll be talking with the candidates to replace Kathleen Wynne. And first up, a former minister in the Wynne government and current MPP for Don Valley East, Michael Cotto. Welcome to Focus. Thanks for having me. Why do you want to be leader of the Liberal Party? I think this is probably the best opportunity any political party's had to, um, uh, to reinvent itself, to focus on what's important in Ontario, and to really redefine what it means to be a Liberal today. And I think that I can lead that process as leader and uh, bring the party to where I think it should be, and that's the alignment with where Ontario is and where Ontario needs to be. We've seen recent polling that even a leaderless Liberal Party outpolls the Doug Ford Conservatives. What does that tell you? I was joking with a reporter yesterday, maybe we should remain leaderless <laughs> because the numbers look so good. Uh, but all jokes aside, I think, um, I think that there's, a, um, uh, there's something happening in Ontario uh, where people are looking at the current government and saying uh, it's not really aligned with their values as Ontarians. You know, the notion that we're in this together, we'll stick together, work together and uh, build systems that support each other, um, that's what Ontarians are looking for and they're not getting this from, uh, from Doug Ford and his Conservative government. The Liberal Party, the Ontario Liberal Party, has long been a rather big tent party and you can be on the left side or the right side. If Kathleen Wynne was on the left side of that party, where do you put yourself in that spectrum? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because everywhere you go in the province people ask you, well, Michael, are you on the left, right, center? I think the world's become so complicated and politics have become so complicated, it's really hard to define yourself that way. So when it comes to the environment, I'm very progressive. When it comes to fiscal matters, um, I think we should be balancing our budgets and trying to spend within our means. And when it comes to education as a former school board trustee, I have a, a, a strong belief in traditional numeracy and literacy and, uh, and looking for a, um, a um, uh, more of a, uh, I would say, uh, traditional approach to education. Voters in this province uh, thoroughly rejected Kathleen Wynne and her party in the 2018 election. Do you think that as a minister in that government, you wear some of that baggage and that would be a negative for you in the next election? I think, uh, make no mistake, there. You know, 15 years was a long time in government and Kathleen Wynne uh, uh, did inherit a lot of uh, scandal and there were some decisions like the selling of hydro that I think uh, didn't align with where people in Ontario wanted to go. Uh, but if you look at what the Liberals in this province were able to achieve, you know, the elimination of coal plants, uh, better, bettering our environment, uh, the increase from almost 66% uh, to almost 90% of graduation rates, there's a lot of good that was there as well. Uh, building a strong economy, even driving into to this building, I saw all the, the development around you. That started off in 2011, 2012 in this region. Um, so there was a lot to be proud of and I think Ontarians are looking back at the lib Liberal legacy and comparing it to where we are today and uh, they realized that there was a lot of good that was happening. Does that mean then as leader that you would embrace that legacy or would you try and say, well, no, I'm a, I'm a different person, we're going in a different direction than the Liberal Party? I think passed. we need to acknowledge uh, that there were some, uh, some major, I would say, disalignments with where people wanted to go in the province, but I've always been proud to be a Liberal. I was proud to be a McGuinty Liberal. I was proud to be a, a to serve in Kathleen Wynne's government and I've, I've always been proud to be a Liberal. Um, I think that, that of course is going to be a challenge to some, but if you look at the poll numbers today, uh, people are realigning with the Ontario Liberal Party and it's because of the values we have. Back in June of 2018, we lost everything as a party, but the only thing we, we were able to salvage was our values and that's why I've been running on a values-driven campaign. I believe if we can take those values and, uh, and bring them for, forward, uh, the value that we're in this together 
and use that as the catalyst to uh, to build a new party, I think we can do something special in Ontario. You talked about trying to live within the fiscal means of, right. that the government has. Right now, the current government is trying to limit public sector wage increases to 1%. That's got them into a lot of trouble with teachers. Right. Would you pay more than that for teachers to well, try and get a deal? I always think, so Doug Ford on one side is saying that, you know, the economy is the best it's ever been. This is, uh, you know, we're open for business and things are so great. But when it comes to his conversation with teachers, uh, he's saying there's not enough money around. Uh, Doug Ford is spending more today than Kathleen Wynne's government, the previous government, spent in its last year, uh, and more than it proposed to spend in the uh, in the upcoming year. Um, I think that there's uh, there's o there should always be a mechanism uh, if the economy is going well to align uh, the cost of living, inflation, with uh, salary increases. But you're going to, I mean, to, to to do that, to up the the salaries, you're going to have to cut from somewhere else. You're going to have to find the money somewhere else. Well, people, affordability is, and it's not just teachers, this is about uh, everyday Ontarians. Um, you could be a mechanic working in a factory, a teacher, or police officer, any, you, know, you or, or myself, the cost of living continues to rise, especially in uh, urban centres like Toronto, and uh, you know, you've got northern communities where they have challenge with regards to accessibility to uh, and access to services. Uh, it's becoming more expensive to live in the city, and um, you know, that pressure is hard on families. So, so government should always be uh, looking for ways to align uh, uh, budgets with uh, with inflation and I I can't say you know when a when a recession hits and things are hard then um, of course governments kind of pull back but Doug Ford saying the economy's never been better so what is it is the economy going well or is but, the economy but, not but, doing well let me ask this specifically then are you saying that public sector uh, salaries should be tied to cost of living increases what I'm saying is if things are good in Ontario and for example we saw Doug Ford give a tax cut to the rich again, uh, to businesses and corporations, and he took that money, that $3 billion that just went out to support more small business taxes uh, away from uh, children and services, and provided that tax break to businesses when businesses were not really asking for more. But so the, 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 the real point is this, is that if there's money in the system and uh, and there's a demand for, uh, for salaries, these are public servants, and uh, I'm sure that every year you get a bit of a bump in your salary or every three years when you renew your contract, people expect the same. And it's finding that balance between good government and where people, you know, organized labor uh, and, and teachers, uh, where they want to be and where governments can actually pay. How important is it that the next leader of the Liberal Party have a seat in the legislature? I think it's very important. We've got another two years to uh, to uh, to challenge Doug Ford to to bring some accountability. And myself and Mitzi Hunter uh, are the two in the legislature that uh, that are running for leadership and uh, and can fight Doug Ford in that forum. And I think it's uh, it's very important. We are a party that we don't have the resources to do what the NDP did federally and you know just pay the leader a uh, a salary for the next uh, couple of years. It's going to be difficult for us with our financial situation. Uh, so I. I think it's important for us to pick someone uh, who can be in a forum to actually face Doug Ford on a daily basis. Michael Cotto, thank you so much for being here Th on Focus. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. Time for a roundup of all things pop culture in our society. And for that, 
my regular guest, Laura Hensley, who is here in studio. She is a journalist with Global News Online. Hi, Laura. Hey, Alan. And Mira Estrada, who is the host of Cultured, which can be heard right on this radio station, joins us on the phone. Hi, Mira. All right, let's begin with Meghan and Harry, and I want to play this for you. This is Doug Ford being asked yesterday, the Premier of Ontario being asked yesterday, if Meghan and Harry decide to move to Toronto, does that mean that Ontario taxpayers will have to pick up some kind of security costs? Here's Doug Ford. The RCMP, if anything, would be taking care of uh, taking care of them, but I would uh, be more than happy to check for you on that. And if they decide to pick Toronto, uh, we welcome them. We welcome them with open arms, and uh, maybe one day they'll come by and say hello to us here. Laura, maybe someday they'll come by and say hello. I don't know if Doug Ford's office is going to be the first stop on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's <laughs> Toronto City tour, but good to know he welcomes them. I don't think they're going to settle in Toronto, though. I think we're pretty sure they're in the West. They're, you know, in Vancouver, Vancouver Island. Me- talk, talk about been- rich. Talk about ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Mira, Megan, sorry. Mira, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... If they're trying to get away from all of that media scrutiny, I don't think Toronto is the best place to go. I, at the same time, I wonder, like, is Canada actually going to provide the safe haven that they're looking for? Mm, when you I, say stay safe haven, do you mean actual security, or, or do you mean, I mean just... like, media, like, away from, like, all that intense media scrutiny that they've been facing. Like, but, in the world that we're in right now, like, this... We also live in a very social media world. Like you, I feel like almost wherever you go, you can't really escape it. Well, I think that's true, and I think that's it's been part of the coverage that puzzles me. It was like, well, if they come to Canada, the press will treat them better. Well, last I checked, that British tabloid press can take a plane. You know, they can come yeah. here. And, and, <laughs> and they already have. And they right? already are here. And not to mention that if you're a freelance photographer, if they're dangling a big paycheck, you're going to go and camp out wherever the, where they are. Mm-hmm. I remember when we first found out that Prince Harry was in Toronto visiting Meghan Markle when she still lived here. And I went, because I was recovering it for the National Post at the time, and there was British paparazzi outside her house. And it was the first time I realized that people actually were so interested in what she was doing with him that they were, to your point, sending people across just to find them. Because like, it, so it, now they'll set up like teams, like dedicated Canadian teams, these British outlets, because there is a family going to be living here, right? Let's let's get back to the cost of it all, because there has been some suggestion that if they do come here, that the 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 federal government or somehow the Canadian taxpayer would end up paying something. Does that change the enthusiasm to have the royal couple living in this country, Laura? I don't think so. I think there's sort of two camps. There's a camp that are just so excited to have Meghan Markle and Prince Harry call Canada home that they're okay if it's going to cost us a little bit of money. But then there's the people who think that they serve no purpose. They don't really necessarily need to be here. They've chosen to be here. So why should it be on taxpayers to foot any security bills? Do you think we're just being cheapskates here, Mira? (laughs) Mira, do you think we're just being cheap? No, I don't think we're being cheap. It's, uh, I mean, look, we have so many, look at our own Canadian citizens. Like, we have a lot to take care of with our own citizens. Why would we have to take care of the royal family now? I, uh, 
I think, that a, fair? <laughs> I think a lot of people would agree. All right, let's move on to our next uh, sub- subject, and that is the Oscars. The nominations are out. But perhaps the thing that makes the most news all this week is not the nominations, but rather this clip from the when the nominations were announced. And Parasite, Bong Joon-ho. Nice. I did it. I did, did it. it. Thank you so much. You did it. Congratulations to those men. Congratulations to those men. That is Issa Rae, and that has raised a lot of hackles about, again, Oscars with a lack of diversity. We'll go to you, Mira. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when we're talking about diversity, we're not just talking about there was a lack of people of color. Like, where, especially in this year, like, look at the amazing amount of female filmmakers. Like, the year that we thought for sure Greta... Um, I was going to for Little Women, like there was Hustlers, there was like so, The Farewell, like there was Lulu Wang, like there were so many incredible female filmmakers that we thought would be on that list that should be on this list that were just completely snubbed. But then Stephen King, the author, took a different stance on this. Earlier this week, he spoke about the three Oscars categories in which he is able to nominate because he's part of the Academy, and he wrote... Quote, I would never consider diversity in matters of art, only quality. It seems to me that to do otherwise would be wrong. End quote. Laura. I think King's comments just really highlight the fact that he doesn't understand the importance of diversity within art. You know, if we only look at, you know, the same filmmakers over and over again, and we don't take into consideration the importance of different voices, we're never going to have those voices represented on the screen. And I think that Stephen King just showed how tone deaf he was. He was basically saying, I don't see color, which is just ridiculous. There was a lot of filmmakers who were really upset with his comments. And I think it just shows how out of touch he really is. But isn't the the point he's making here is that the artistic merit should be based on the artistic merit and not the color, the race, the gender of who made that art, Mira? That's right, Alan. So, but, but what he was saying, though, in effect, was that the idea that quality and diversity are mutually exclusive. And that, that's the problem in itself, right? And I think that's where a lot of people, myself included, took offense to. I think it also highlighted that there, he wasn't acknowledging there's barriers, right? There's barriers for women of color. There's barriers for people of color to get acknowledged. And the fact that the Academy is still primarily comprised of white males, it's just sort of putting these blinders on. And he's not realizing how those blinders are affecting the quality of art and the diversity that they're actually seeing. So I think what we need to see is a shift in the Academy. We need to see more women. We need to see more people of color. And then I think that will hopefully be reflected in which films and actors are not Let's move to the Rock and Roll Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The nominees or the inductees for this year have been announced: Notorious B.I.G., Depeche Mode, Doobie Brothers, T-Rex. I'm looking at Laura; has no idea who T-Rex is. I know who T-Rex really? is. Yeah, okay. my dad always played tons of music growing up. That you know was created before I was born. So. No, that's all. That, that, <laughs> I actually had an editorial meeting uh, at Global earlier this week, and people were like, T-Rex, what's that? Uh, but anyway, let's get back to who is in uh, and who is out. Dave Matthews and Motorhead did not make the cut this year, but Depeche Mode and Notorious B.I.G. are in. Any thoughts on who's in and who's not in? Well, I mean, so so this is one where, like, the inductees, like, this range of inductees is, like, gradually broadening. 
I wonder, so it's called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't follow the hall at all. I mean, this was founded in the early 80s. It's, and the funny thing with this is, like, the hall has been consistently as well um, critiqued for lack of diversity. But I'm wondering, is this supposed to be about rock and roll, in which case I'm confused why B.I.G., like, is in here, like, Biggie's in here as much as I, I love Biggie and Tupac and Janet Jackson, or is this a music hall of fame? So you're saying it's not rock and roll? Yeah, like, because if it is, then, like... I don't think Depeche Mode is rock and roll either. Irrelevant. All right, I got your point there. I want one more before we run out of time, and this is from this morning from Pharrell. Pharrell Williams had a condo announcement here in Toronto, a new condo at Young and Egg is a project by developers, and they brought in Pharrell to basically do some design. And listen to this, and try and, I don't, this is like a lot of words and nothing, is it not? And that is the reason why it's called Untitled, is because... We wanted it to be beautifully ambiguous, beautifully ambiguous and ambiguously beautiful. Um, Because if it's anything other than that, then it's just a certain thing that you either like or you don't like. That is Pharrell Williams. Laura, can you tell me what that was about? I have no idea. Untitled for a name of a condo development. Pharrell is just sort of rambling a bunch of nonsense. You know, it's like when artists say the art is just so meaningful, you can't understand it. It says so much, it's saying so little. It's about nothing. <laughs> He's got his rambling on. I'm like, Pharrell, how much are these going to cost? And uh, who's going to live there? That's what I want to know. Then it's just a certain thing that you either like or you don't like. <laughs> Mira, what did you make of that? I think it is like a, such a load of hogwash. <laughs> I think I could use other words. I'm not allowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I listen, you know, and just even, be like, happy. It's, like, it's all about calming energy and water and the zen. And I'm like, what retreat did you just come from, dude? I don't think he's been to Young and Eglinton if he's talking about the water and Zen. It's not a, yeah, it's a dystopian nightmare at Young and Egg lately. It's terrible up there. All right, thank you so much, uh, Mira and Laura. Appreciate you being here every Friday. Thank you so much. And thank you to you, my listener, for being with us this hour. We're back again on Monday. Join me tonight on television at 5.30 on Global News. Myself and my co-anchor Farah Nasser, and we're also simulcast on this radio station beginning at 6. Have yourself a great weekend.